Hi, it's Laura. Thanks for listening to What on Earth. You might have noticed we've been trying some new things lately. We want you to keep listening, and we also want to get even more Earthlings on board. So whether you're new or a longtime fan, here's what we want to know. What do we do best? What should we rethink? What do you want to see us try next? Please fill out our survey. It's at cbc.ca slash whatonearthpod. We're listening. This is a CBC Podcast. Floods in Pakistan, floods in Nigeria. Every single day we are seeing impacts that are now attributable to having been not caused but exacerbated by human-induced climate change due to emissions of greenhouse gases caused by the polluters, by polluting countries. So they have to take some responsibility. Simply refusing to talk about it is no longer acceptable to us. Now the impacts are already happening. There's no more adaptation left to do. It's beyond adaptation and we need to help the victims. And that is what we call addressing loss and damage from human-induced climate change. That's Salim al-Huk, a climate scientist from Bangladesh. And it was a conversation Salim and I had a year ago, just before the UN climate talks. It was also the last conference of parties or COP meetings that Salima would attend. He died last month. He was 71. I'm Laura Lynch, and this is What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. Today, the legacy of a man who fought to protect the people most at risk from global warming. For years, Salim al-Hook was a passionate and leading voice, fighting for the creation of a new fund, Richer nations that emitted the most greenhouse gases would pay for the losses and damages felt by vulnerable developing countries due to climate change. And boy, it was a fight to get wealthy countries on board. Here's how Selimol described it to me back in 2021, heading into that year's COP negotiations. We have foregone the right to call it liability and compensation, as I said. But what we are asking for is solidarity. I'll give you the two examples that happened just within the last couple of months. We had floods in Germany that killed more than 200 Germans. It caused tens of billions of euros of damage. Uh, Hurricane Ida that hit the United States hit the coast of Louisiana and then traveled all the way up to New Jersey, flooded the subways in New York, killed more than 50 people in New Jersey. Uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel visited the flood hit areas. President Joe Biden visited the flood hit areas in New Jersey. They both admitted this was human-induced climate change, attributable to human-induced climate change. And then both of them forked out billions of euros and dollars to compensate their own citizens from that damage. Now, we have no problem with that. It's a good thing for them to have done. But, you know, citizens in Bangladesh, in Malawi, in Kenya, in Tuvalu are also being damaged by climate change and suffering loss and damage. Do they not have one dollar or one euro to give to those people at all? In the negotiations, they're saying no, zero. We're not going to give you a dime. Not a cent. Not a cent. What's your reaction to that position? Makes my blood boil that they can get away with that. You know, they're polluters. They're causing harm and they're saying, you. That is Salim al-Hook, classic vintage Salim al-Hook, Harjit Singh. I wonder what it's like for you hearing those words from your friend. It's so surreal. Uh, trust me, I've got, I got goosebumps. That was the most impressive thing about Salim. Such depth of knowledge and so renowned, yet 
so clear in his words in his articulation on what the problem is and what needs to happen and very strong advocate for loss and damage over the last few years but has been fighting for developing countries to get adaptation support for 30 years I'm really sorry for the loss of your friend. I know he he was more than just a colleague in, in the work that you were doing. You worked closely with him for many years. Um I wonder can you let our listeners know who you are? I'm Harjeet Singh and I'm head of global political strategy at Climate Action Network International. I'm based in New Delhi and I have been working with Salim since 2005. My first interaction was with him on the issue of disaster risk reduction which means preparing to deal with disasters so we all went to bangladesh to learn and salim talked about those concepts and he was at that time also working towards starting community based adaptation which he pioneered so we connected so well and we started pushing for adaptation that time of course he had been championing for many many years so i joined him in this fight and then 2010 11 onwards we joined hands to push for the loss and damage fund and together we fought at the doha cop climate conference in 2012 so i have so many memories of working with him together he used to call me fellow climate warrior <laughs> and um and and a comrade he used to love take selfies with me you know, the the connection was so personal i just feel this this loss is is irreparable and i i i still feel very emotional about it again i i am so sorry but but i wonder when you say that the connection was so personal maybe you can share with us the side of salim that that you don't always hear about when he's doing interviews or when he's formally um acting at at a cop and talking there what what is he like when the microphones are off salim is i still say is uh you know he was so approachable so accessible you know such a calm a uh, composed person anybody could approach him uh, be it a young researcher or a negotiator and he would talk to everybody with the same ease and with same respect most importantly and he's always ready to share his experiences and uh, and invest in them and the way he interacted with people uh with such humility is is a lesson for everybody of course his death would be a huge loss at any time but for him to pass away just before cop 28 what's that like for you and for other people who knew him and worked with him well i i still can't imagine that there is going to be a cop without him not many people are aware uh over the last few years he started going to the cop of course he was not in the negotiating rooms because he was such a father figure training negotiators that he was not supposed to be now uh, looking at the text and commas and semicolons he would find a place and a table somewhere you know in the cafeteria and say this is salim's office <laughs> and he would declare that to everybody so we are not going to find salim's office this time the two of you worked together on the establishment of the loss and damage fund and we know that was approved last year but now the countries are at odds about who pays who's eligible for funding who would oversee the fund i'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about what's going on with those disagreements so there are so many issues that we are dealing with right now starting with the location of the fund itself uh, i know if salim had been there he would not have accepted the world bank to host 
the loss and damage fund, which is exactly what rich countries and particularly the U.S. is pushing for. Why would he not want that? Well, the, the challenge is that World Bank offers loans and their business model is to make money for their shareholders and for them to provide grants, full uh, grant support to countries and communities is something that we'll have to keep fighting for. And the access is not available to all countries. And there are many more conditions that are being put by rich countries to operationalize this fund. And we know that if, if it is uh, the World Bank, it's never going to be as agile as it needs to be because we are actually fighting with the unknowns. The way disasters are unfolding, the way we are going to see the impacts of increased desertification and rising seas and glaciers melting, we can't just develop all the solutions right now. An institution like World Bank will never have that kind of agility and flexibility. That's why we are saying we need a new home for such a fund which is responding to the needs of the communities now, but is also fit for future, which the World Bank is not. World Bank is not even fit for now. In fact, it has had a role in exacerbating the climate crisis by continuing to fund fossil fuel expansion. I hear you. And then there's also the questions about who should pay. Rich countries want China and Saudi Arabia to contribute. Um, questions of who should benefit from it. It seems like there's a lot going on. And a lot, of blame, oh, yeah. a lot of blame seems to be laid at the feet of the United States for being obstructionist. And the U.S. denies that. It says it's been working diligently at every turn to address concerns and problem solve. That's according to um, Christina Chan, who's a managing director and a senior advisor to the special presidential envoy for climate, John Kerry. What do you say to that? Well, I wish Salim had been there. He would have responded. He would have shared the history of the U.S. for the last 30 years. But I can I can talk about what U.S. has done in the last 15 years. Since 2008, I have been following negotiations very closely. And of course, knowing the history uh, of the U.S., it has always been an obstructionist, always, and has not met its fair share of climate action domestically, uh, has not provided sufficient resources to countries on adaptation, which means preparing communities to deal with climate impacts, and has been a blocker. I have been an eyewitness, and I can challenge anybody who is claiming that U.S. has not been an obstructionist. I've been in the rooms, and I've seen how the U.S. did not allow even the agenda of loss and damage finance uh, to be put on the table. We're speaking with you on November the 1st while you're in Abu Dhabi for a last-ditch meeting on the loss and damage fund. I'm wondering how critical is it to reach an agreement before COP starts at the end of the month? Well, it, it is a make-or-break meeting. I won't hesitate in saying that because this COP climate conference uh, in Dubai is a very complex one. Again, as I said, I've been in this process for 15 years. I have not seen a climate conference with so many big agenda items coming together. You know, we are in a petro state. The issue of fossil fuel phase out is at the top of our priority alongside this loss and damage fund to be operationalized. But then we also have a just transition work program that should emanate from uh, this conference. We have adaptation goal being agreed um, finance is a big issue. I mean, the list goes on. So that's why this transitional committee should finalize recommendations so that at COP, we only have you know one or two discussions and then agreement from all countries. If 
we see negotiations happening on the text and we don't have clean recommendations, the fear is that it's going to be traded against other issues, which is not acceptable. You cannot talk about loss and damage fund as a bargaining chip. We have to seal the deal here in Abu Dhabi so that we then finalize it in Dubai. Harjeet, I have to say, when, when I hear you talking, I can hear echoes of Salim in your voice. And I, I just wonder, <laughs> it, it, as you go into this first COP without him there, how will you be, I guess, keeping his legacy alive? How will you keep him in your mind and your heart while you're there? Well, I, I have already uh, taken a pledge that I'm going to redouble my efforts and I'm going to continue with this work championing the cause, but I'll do it with a lot more passion and hard work. I can't claim to be in such big shoes of Salim, but I'm going to try my level best because we have to keep his legacy alive. And I hope somewhere from the heavens above, he is watching us, guiding us, and also blessing us to to fight harder. Harjeet Singh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. And we'll be right back. We know the news can be relentless and it's hard to keep up. On Your World Tonight, it's our mission to catch you up in less than 30 minutes. When news breaks, our reporters are there across Canada and around the world. We bring you context and analysis and sort out what's real and what's relevant. I'm Susan Bonner. I'm Tom Harrington. I'm Stephanie Skanderis. We host Your World Tonight. New episodes every night, seven days a week. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. From the veterans of the movement fighting for climate justice to those in the next generation carrying the fight forward. Hi. Hi. How are you? Nice to meet you in person you after all this yeah. time. That's crazy. I know. I have something for you. Oh, thank you. It's your very own What on Earth t-shirt. Oh, my God. Thank so when so we first started What on Earth more than three years ago, I had some t-shirts made for the team. There are only a few left now, and I thought I'd give one to one of our columnists since we're meeting face-to-face for the first time. So let's head in. Okay. Aishwarya Patur just moved to Vancouver, and she's joining me in person in studio. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Does she need headphones, Matt? You don't really it, need them. Headphones. It's up to you. If you want to wear them, that's fine. Yeah, I think okay, I will. Okay, sure. No problem. I'm used to it in kitchen. Oh, yeah. So. <laughs> okay. All right. Aishwarya is an 18-year-old climate justice organizer and a student at the University of British Columbia, and she is our youth climate action columnist. Today, we're talking about how young people like her are balancing the demands of going to school, building a career, and the desire to make a difference for the planet. But first, Aishwari, can you tell me how the first few weeks of university have been? Honestly, I think the first few weeks of university, I was still trying to settle in because it was so new to me. I didn't think I'd be that homesick, but I was homesick. But I've gotten over it. (laughs) I talk to my parents every day, so it's great. Yeah, I feel like I finally fit in. I found a community on campus, which is really nice. How have those first few weeks of university changed your perspective on what your climate action could look like in the future? Yeah, I think what I realized, which I 
kind of knew coming into university was that I definitely want my career to be climate focused. Now, whether that is within policy, whether that's in law, whether that's in maybe even reporting, whether that's in perhaps like scientific form, I'm not really sure yet. I think that's become that way because of the courses that I'm taking, right? Um, And I'm very grateful to be taking these incredible courses from these incredible professors who've taught me so much. Well, that's great. When you think about this future career, though, uh, what other kinds of important considerations or responsibilities are you weighing? I always tell this to every person I meet when they ask me, what do you want to do? And it's that when I'm on my deathbed, (laughs) I want to make sure that I can look at my grandchildren and tell them that I tried. You're only 18. I know I'm 18, (laughs) but at the end of the day... Young people now, especially those in the climate movement, we feel this huge responsibility on our shoulders because I'm at an age where I have the opportunity to learn and to make a difference. But when you look at children who are currently in elementary school, by the time they are 17 or 18, we will get to know whether there's any more saving to do, whether there's anything left to prevent the world from climate catastrophe or not, right? They don't get a choice in this because they're children but I I am at that I almost feel like it's a perfect age where I can have that choice because I can vote now I am choosing my career path so for me I see it as a responsibility and it shouldn't be one but I see it as a responsibility because there is no other option I also wonder you're, you're talking about future generations yeah. but also I'm, I'm wondering about your parents do mm-hmm. they factor into things And what their hopes are for you? Is that something that you think about? Yeah. Also, on the topic of my parents, happy birthday, Amma. It's my mom's (laughs) birthday today. So, um, yes. But I think my parents, they definitely do factor into the decisions that I make. And the fact that they're immigrants who came here, sacrificed so much, because none of my family's here except my parents and me, right? They're all in India. And so for me... It is important that I choose a career path where I'm not only fulfilling what I want to achieve, but also a career path where I'm able to make my parents proud and financially support them when I'm older and financially support myself. And that's where I guess the topic of green jobs comes in and livable wages. Of course. I'm wondering how all of that compares, though, to what you're hearing from other young people in the climate movement. Yeah, I think... The major thing that we constantly hear is that we need more green jobs, right? And we need green jobs that are paying livable wages. We constantly talk about turning the page to a green economy. But in order for that to happen, in order for us to go into this green economy, we need to be able to create those opportunities for the people that are stepping into career paths. Because it's not that young people don't want to go into green jobs. It's that there's not enough green jobs that exist, right? And I do believe that the Canadian government plays a huge role in ensuring that these green jobs are created and they should be collaborating with young people, collaborating with businesses, nonprofits, um, collaborating with schools and universities, right? When we talk about green jobs, it's not just about building solar panels. You can work, as you've already mentioned, in all kinds of fields. What kinds of green jobs do you think are needed to tackle the problem? I think there needs to be green jobs where, A, of course, the very obvious one, which is working on renewable energy projects, but B, there needs to be green jobs where 
especially people who are just going into their career, are able to help within the implementation of policy. It's not that we don't have great climate policy. There could they could be better. I'll, I'll I'll put that out there. They could be better, but it's not that they don't exist. It's that the implementation falls apart, um, and that's because a lot of the time governments and businesses don't feel the responsibility because there is nothing that is keeping them in check. So, and this is where I think I'd ideally like to work as well is within that implementation. So, creating jobs that can connect federal and provincial legislature to the public, right? right. Um, and, and is that what other young people are saying to you too? Or is there kind of that same feeling about it? Oh yeah, absolutely. And But I do think that um, a lot of young people, they want their voices to be heard. And that's the problem. And it's and it's ridiculous that we constantly say this every single year. But it's interesting because you say voices to be heard. And yeah. in, in past years, that effort to be heard has come through climate protests, climate mm-hmm. demonstrations. Mm-hmm. There have been some over the past couple of months in mm-hmm. Canada and around the world, but they seem to be smaller and lower profile. Why do you think that is? I believe it's a lot smaller because of the pandemic, right? So for example, in Vancouver in 2019, there was like 100,000 people who showed up to the climate protest. And this year it was 5,000 people, which is still an incredible amount, 5,000 people. It's definitely because of the pandemic. And it's also... I do think that many people often like fall into the trap that thinking that strikes and climate protests are not necessarily effective. And I'll be very honest and very raw here. I fell into that trap before as well, right? And especially as an organizer who organizes protests, because a lot of the time when we organize these protests and these strikes, when we do not see tangible change immediately delivered, it's hard to accept the fact that you put in so much unpaid laborious hours into organizing these humongous strikes without being able to see immediate change, right? But every time I've fallen into that trap, I always think back to previous movements like the civil rights movement, the feminist movement, anti-apartheid movement. All of these movements, change was never created through a couple of strikes, right? It is only through powerful voices with powerful crowds will powerful impacts be made. So you think there is still a role for for the youth protests to move the climate issue forward? I do think that there is a role, but I do think that we need to be strategic about what we're protesting and what we're striking for. I know that within this climate strike that happened in Vancouver recently, what they were trying to do, well, the main protest goal, was um, to get Justin Trudeau to impose the emissions cap that he's been promising for the past two years. I think something like that, it's, it's a very clear goal. It's, hey, this is what we want. This is why we're protesting. I think that's amazing. That's great because you have a tangible deliverable. But I think when... A protester strike is so vague, that is when it is not effective. So you have to be offering the the priority of solution. You're not just saying, here's the problem, fix it. Here's the problem, do this. That's Ex- what you want. Exactly. So the big problem solvers, some would say, uh, are the cop, the leaders gathering at COP meetings once mm-hmm. a year. And this next one is coming up. How important do you think those gatherings are to your generation? 
from my perspective, I think this is the one time that the world comes together to talk about climate policy, because when else do we do that? Like, let's be honest. And so for climate change to have such a big platform on a global scale, um, I think is incredibly important, not just through media and through the eyes of the public, but also through the eyes of policy, law, and through the eyes of activists as well. But um, I interviewed someone named Amelie Wilkinson because I wanted to know their perspective as well since they're attending COP28. They work for Stop Ecocide uh, Canada. They're a youth coordinator there. And they told me that this is going to be the first time that I'm going to be able to meet people that I've been working with for years internationally. And so making those connections in person and building that community of organizers and civil societies and grassroots movements is to them more important. And to them, they see COP as an opportunity to do that. There's so much more we could we could talk about, but I, I know we're going to talk again um, in the future, mm-hmm. and I just cannot tell you how lovely it is to have you right here in the studio with me, Aishwarya Batur. Thank you. Until next time. Thank you so much. We've heard a lot about your broken stuff over the past few weeks. Dishwashers and vacuums, blenders and kettles, products that no longer last as long as they used to. Replacing them over and over again creates more waste, more consumption, and that definitely has a climate impact. But Kyle Weens, who has become a champion of the cause, says there's a solution. Laws that would uphold people's right to repair their broken devices and appliances. A circular economy based more around services and maintaining the products that we've already got would be much better for everyone. Now, after Kyle shared some of his ideas, we heard from quite a few of you again. And that means what on earth, Rachel Sanders is back once more. Hi. Hey, Laura. Yes, we got more listener emails again this week. And, you know, I've been really impressed by how much DIY advice listeners have offered. If you'll remember, all of this started with my own broken food processor, and we heard yet more suggestions for how I might be able to repair the cracked handle. Tom Moore suggested something stronger than duct tape. It's called aluminum tape. And like duct tape, it's usually used for air ducts. Tom said he used several layers of aluminum tape to fix his broken food processor handle, and his machine has been back in business for several years now. Alan Ball also got in touch to suggest a product called Sugru, which he describes as part glue, part modeling clay. So that might work to fix some of our listeners' broken plastic stuff as well. All these solutions. Kyle told us that the old expression, they don't make them like they used to, (laughs) is absolutely true. And a few listeners wrote to share their thoughts about that as well. Barbara Warnock emailed to say, In 1985, when we purchased our cottage, it came with a beer and bait fridge in the boathouse. It was an international harvester built in 1951. It worked like a charm, and it still does. Yep, they don't make them like they used to. I've got one more email to end on. Margaret Rossi wrote to say, I have the same food processor with the exact same problem. It has been sitting on my shelf for three years. You inspired me to try and fix it, and I was able to use a piece of wine cork to stick in the contact point, and voila, it worked again. (laughs) I'm so glad to hear I'm not the only one who hangs on to broken stuff for years, and I'm really happy to hear we've inspired someone else to fix her food processor too. 
Well, there you go, Rachel. You must feel very satisfied because all of this has helped a lot of people. And it's great to hear we'll be following the developments with right to repair legislation, both here in Canada and around the world in the coming months. Thank you for all of those emails. And you can always get in touch about anything you hear on the show, earth at cbc.ca. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks, Laura. That's all for now. The What on Earth team is Vivian Luck, Rachel Sanders, Molly Siegel, Danielle Piper, Matthias Wolfson, and Catherine Rolfson. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.